myopia, a combination of two ancient Greek words, the first meaning mole, like the little animal, the second meaning eyesight. So literally, myopia means seeing like a mole. It's a fancy way of saying nearsighted, which of course some of you probably suffer with. It's where you can see things and focus up close. When they get too far away, they get blurry, right? Any nearsighted people out there, how do you correct your nearsightedness? Glasses, okay, corrective lenses, right? Um, myopia has also come to refer to being short-sighted in the sense of being so focused on what's in front of you that you could miss the sight of the big picture. Sometimes we say, uh, I see the trees, but I miss the forest, this kind of idea. And this uh, is classically, uh, a classic example of myopia in that sense is a video we're about to see. Some of you have seen it before, so keep your mouth shut. But stare at the time, the amount of times that the white team passes the basketball, all right? Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. Now, I knew some of you had seen that gorilla one, so I had to find one with a little twist. Did anyone who had seen the gorilla one also catch the curtain change and the player leaving? You're such attention to detail. Good for you. You don't need this message. Go enjoy the sunshine. No, I'm just kidding. No, there'll, be, there'll be something for you, too. There'll be something for you, too. Yep. <laughs> but this, this type of thing happens all the time. In fact, I'm, I'm thankful it does, because we would literally go insane if our minds could focus on every single thing that happened all around us. And it's kind of funny when we realize we've been myopic on a video like this. Um, but what about if this happens in a situation where it really matters? And, I've been thinking a lot, of, I don't know why, about the space program lately. Maybe it's because Star Wars is coming out again, I'm so excited. But when we first went to put a person on the moon, NASA had uh, just this huge group of different specialists. You had uh, groups of engineers and physicists and astronauts and medical professionals and all kinds of brainiacs and people. And so, you know, one team, for example, would be in charge of creating the first ever craft that would have to land onto the moon. It had to be lightweight enough to get out of the Earth's atmosphere, sturdy enough to withstand the impact of a, of a lunar landing. And, and so you've got this team over here working hard on this, uh, this pod concept. Then you have another complete team that has to focus on uh, creating a spacesuit that would be able to help a, a human being live outside on the moon. It's got to take into consideration communications and, and, and vision so you don't get you know, the UV rays and you've got to have the temperature stuff and, and atmosphere and all of that. Now what happens though if these teams aren't talking to each other, if they don't step back and see the big picture? See what happens is you, you get this team that creates a, a landing craft and a team that creates a functional spacesuit, but they realize, oh no, we created a spacesuit that's so big we can't get it into the hatch that you made in the craft. 
This is what getting too focused, too myopic uh, can, can do. Getting overly focused to the point where you lose sight of the big picture can have disastrous results. And the results get even worse if the thing that you're focused on is wrong. So let's take this space thing uh, a step further. You've got your uh, landing pod team and your spacesuit team and all the other teams and everything's ready to go. The rocket's on the launch pad. Everything is a, is a go. And now you've got your navigation team, right, who has to figure out the angle that this ship has to go on to get to the moon. And, you know, if you are off a few degrees, that's not a big deal if you're going 100 feet. But the average distance from the Earth to the moon is 240,000 miles. So if you're off a couple degrees, right, math people that are smarter than me, if you're up a, a few degrees and to over 240,000 miles, you might be so far from the moon, uh, you're in big trouble. You're just out into open space. You have to get your coordinates right. Before you go into hyperspace in the Millennium Falcon, you've got to get it dialed in, right? Because you could crash into an asteroid field, or right, fly right into a star. Am I around? Okay, that's right. Okay, so this has been a long introduction, but I want to set some groundwork for an issue that most of us struggle with, with and that's gospel myopia. The good news of the reign of Jesus has massive implications both personally and for all of creation. It is multifaceted. The gospel, it's multifaceted, it affects every aspect of life. But what happens when we get overly focused on one aspect of the gospel? And worse yet, what happens when we get overly focused on one aspect of the gospel and we get that aspect wrong? If we correct physical myopia with new lenses, how do we correct myopia of gospel focus? The church that Paul planted in Corinth was dealing with this very issue. Not only had they become overly focused on one small piece of the gospel, they were mistaken in its focus. And thankfully, Paul is going to now show us the problem and help us correct that myopia. So would you stand with me, please, as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, and I, brothers and sisters, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to people of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshy? Fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not just mere human beings? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one that's laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, 
wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If any person's work which has built on it remains, they'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, they'll suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved yet as through fire. Do you not know? You are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy them, for the temple of God is holy. And that's exactly what you are. Let no one deceive themselves. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that they may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in mere human beings. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Lord, I pray uh, that you would use this message, this text, to help get our vision in focus. Lord, show us what it was that you're saying uh, through your servant Paul to the Corinthians, and help us to receive that good news for ourselves and be able to apply it to our life. One of the great realities or aspects of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills believers with the life of Christ. The Spirit teaches us the things of Christ. The Spirit convicts us of sin, helps us keep on the right track. Um, The Spirit bears fruit of the character of Jesus in us, bears the fruit of the Spirit in us. Uh, The Spirit equips each of us to build up the church. The Corinthians became so focused on the work of the Spirit that they neglected some of the more foundational aspects of the gospel. More than that, they had slipped into a way of thinking of being spiritual that was really bad theologically. In fact, it was unchristian the way that they had started thinking. The Corinthians became so focused on the work of the Spirit that they completely missed foundational message of Jesus. Now, judging from the larger context, we know that Paul writes much of this letter to the Corinthians as a response to two things. One, a letter that they had written to him, and two, uh, some oral reports that had come um, from some friends of his about what was going on in Corinth. And we deduce that one of their beefs with Paul is that he didn't seem to them to be spiritual enough. In fact, some of them came to believe that they were more spiritually mature than the Apostle Paul, who planted the church 18 months ago. Now, here's the deal. Paul preached a gospel about a God who became a human being. Jesus, of course. This Jesus that he's preaching to these high flutin' Corinthians was from a little town called Nazareth, Uh, He was crucified on a Roman cross, and that's only part of the gospel. But this is a huge issue for the Corinthians. They do not like the fact 
that their Lord that Paul has preached to them is a Jew from occupied Roman territory who died on a cross. Some of you may know Pastor Tim Hedberg. He's the pastor at Clear Lake Covenant Church in Mount Vernon. He's actually uh, Christy Wilson's parents pastor. Great guy. Well, he and his family recently went to Kenya uh, over uh, Holy Week. They were there. And while in Kenya, they were looking for a Good Friday service. They couldn't find one, but they finally tracked down a Good Friday service. They go to this service. Um, the, at the service, somebody quickly, quickly reads the crucifixion story, and then they move right to celebration that Jesus has risen from the grave. It kind of shocked my friend Tim because, you know, Good Friday is about recognizing that Jesus died for us, and then we wait to Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. And so he talked with this guide about it afterwards. He said, so why, here's, in my culture, this is what we do on Good Friday. Why is it so different here? Why were people so quick to jump to Easter? He said, oh, well, we don't like this part of the story of Jesus. And he said, well, tell me more. He says, in our culture, the way a person dies is very important to their legacy. And here you have this man, Jesus, who dies a shameful death on a Roman cross in occupied territory without sons. He, was not die he did not die a dignified death. This is a common, how you die is important, not just uh, in Kenya, but in many uh, Near Eastern places. And in fact, it would be really prominent in the culture that the Corinthians were living in. So they did not like the fact that their God was so shamed in his death. Now, of course, we as Christians know that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And this was another issue for the Corinthians. So Paul preached Christ crucified, which they didn't like. And then he pre preached, uh, Paul preached Jesus resurrected from the dead in a body. Corinthians didn't like that either. Because they liked the idea of spirit escaping things physical, escaping the body. And the, the gospel partly is that you're going to receive a body forever. Embodied eternity. Now, it's a good body that doesn't break down and have any of the limitations that we have. But it's, it, it's enfleshed nonetheless. Shameful, scandalous to the Corinthians. They wanted to move past this basic stuff and start talking about life in the Spirit. Paul says in so many words, you're not ready for more teaching. You still need mother's milk like spiritual babies. Here's the important thing that I want you to catch. And Tommy, if you're doing small group stuff, you've got to catch this one for your group. Paul is not saying that there is some higher teaching, like advanced Christianity, that he really wants to teach the Corinthians, but they're just not ready for it. Okay? He's saying that it is obvious by their actions that they're still infants in the faith. They think that they're so spiritual but they are forming cliques and factions, highlighting different Christian leaders in their community. Some are saying that they're for Apollos and he's their big hero or champion. Others are saying, we're with Cephas, that's Peter's name. And others are with Paul. And what Paul is saying is, listen, by the mere fact that you're acting this way, that you're dividing the church up into these factions, I can tell that you are a spiritual baby. You are not walking in the spirit. In nearly every arena in life, competency plus drive equals success. Probably because success is held to be one of a number of things, money, power, growth, 
notoriety, legacy, upward mobility. But you can be a success in any of those areas in life and still fail at life. The point is that the Corinthians are lacking character. It's not that they need to know more stuff, like Paul wants to teach them more advanced Christian teachings. He, he, doesn't, he wants to start a seminary or something. That's not what his point is. His point is, you guys are not even getting the basics. It's your character. They're lacking the point of the gospel at all. The point isn't mere uh, more knowledge or, or a spiritual escape from reality. The point is learning to follow a master who served and died and rose in a body, who promises not escape from the world, but healing of the world. Paul says, you are wrong, Corinthian church, to pit Apollos against me, against Cephas, because every Christian leader is merely a servant. Each one has gifts and each one has roles. And Paul's role was to plant churches. He planted tons of churches that we know about. He probably planted more. That was his role. He'd stroll into town, he'd plant churches, he'd raise up leaders, and he'd move on. He was an early apostle. Apollos was a different dude. This guy had different skill sets. He was an eloquent speaker, a discipler, a teacher. Apollos would travel and he would shore up the churches that Paul planted. It's like comparing apples and oranges when you say, I'm for Paul and I'm for Apollos. These are different people with different skills. And Cephas, Peter, was a completely different guy too. He's more in an administrative role at this time in history. A rock and anchor of the church and then finally a martyr in the church. Paul says you're wrong to pit us against each other because, A, we get along. <laughs> We're on the same team. You guys are screwed up. We're on the same team. And because we're all servants of God. Every Christian leader called out is a servant of God. He's like, don't make me your champion. Don't make Apollos your champion. We don't work for you, actually. Like, we work for God. We're his servants. Now, Paul says he was like, a ma in the English text, it says master builder. Uh, it's more architect is maybe a, a more accurate term. Um, think of an architect who's actually handy as well. There's, in fact, I think James Matichuk's dad was like this. He is an architect and an engineer. So the melding of the artistic and the practical worlds. Uh, Paul says he's like an architect, a master designer, who planted the church in Corinth on the foundation of Jesus. Jesus incarnate, Jesus the servant, the one who washes feet, uh, Jesus the crucified, Jesus the risen, and Jesus the reigning. This is, when, when we say that Paul preached Jesus, that's what we're talking about. All of those aspects of his career, if you will. Even if you want, that's what he says. Other leaders will come and build on that foundation of Jesus. They, including Paul, are going to be judged, uh, judged for how they built on that foundation. Did they build on the foundation of Jesus, or did they just decide to build their own side projects? Now, notice that the leaders in this story, or in this, this letter, uh, Paul says they get rewarded based on their labor, not based on their production. 
I was thinking about that. That is so different from most of the world. I was thinking about um, you know, a guy like Nathaniel Wilson, who owns a painting company. And you know, if he hires a new guy um, or girl, and uh, that person, he says, okay, I, I expect you to paint the trim white and the, and the siding gray. I'll come back and check on your work here at the end of the day. He comes back, and the trim is gray, and the siding's white. Like, that's not okay. Like, you're probably going to get fired for that. You have, to, you have to produce things in most of the world. And but what Paul is saying here is like, don't judge Apollos or me or Cephas on, uh, on the outward externals. Don't use worldly categories to judge the work that God's called us to do. Christian leaders are judged on their faithfulness, not their outward appearance. A lot of people think that Paul was probably a frumpy-looking character, if I can say that, kind of just short and dumpy and probably balding and, and had some other... Uh, he wasn't the most eloquent speaker, people think. And so... Uh, Maybe a lot like me in a few years, but so what happens is, is you know, people begin to look down on him, not for the substance of his message, but for his style. Paul's saying, don't use those standards to judge God's workers. God chooses to work in and through people in different ways, and what counts is your faithfulness to your calling. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're being myopic short-sighted. You're focused on your own definition of what a good Christian leader is, and you're wrong. Don't judge on the externals, because in the end, the leaders among you will have their work tested by fire. Those that build with materials that stand up to the test of fire, like gold and silver and precious stones, they're going to be rewarded. What does it mean, then, to build with things like gold and silver and precious stones? It means staying rooted in the basics of Jesus. Jesus in the flesh, Jesus crucified for sin of the world, Jesus resurrected, Jesus reigning. Any teaching that gets away from the core of that foundation will not last. And I've asked you to hold me accountable to that in my ordination when I stood before you. And I ask you to keep doing that. If you start notice that I start talking about a lot of other things besides Jesus, uh, you need to tell me. You need to, to hold my feet to the fire. And if you start getting sick of hearing about Jesus, I need to hold you accountable and say, no, I'm not going to talk about other things. That's, there's other avenues for that. In church, we talk about Jesus. Okay, so that's an important foundation piece. That's what it means to build with good building materials. Those who build with fluff and junk like wood and hay and straw will have their life's work burn up in front of them. What is the wood and straw and hay? It's trying to build the church, frankly, on anything but Jesus. Uh, there's a church in Tacoma uh, in decline. It's a mainline church, uh, aging congregation, and I have a, a mutual connection with them, so they asked me to come out and do some co consulting a few years back. And I said, well, tell me about what's going on. What are you guys doing? And so they, they were so proud. They said, well, uh, we're fearful of dying because we have no young people coming, so we want to attract young people. And so they said, you know, we're really experimenting with some contemporary worship. We do like a Chris Tomlin song now, and they're very excited about that. And, and they said, we started a community garden because we can tell that a lot of young people are involved in the other community gardens around town. And they had a preschool. Great stuff. Uh, the pastor w was accustomed to wearing robes on Sunday, and so uh, he changed uh, to wearing jeans. I don't know if they had the crosses sewn in the pockets or not, I, but just... And the sermons uh, that were, they used to preach the, the lectionary, uh, they switched their sermons to talk more about things like relationships and justice, and the sermons were more inspirational, uh, they were telling me. And they stopped taking communion so often, because it was weird to, to visitors, 
And still nothing was working. In fact, they were declining faster. And I didn't really know where to begin without blowing the whole thing up. And I said, if I were a newcomer, what would I be able to, to tell about, A, how you think about Jesus? If I were a newcomer to come to your church this Sunday, what would I think you think about Jesus? And B, what would I think you think about me? You see, it had been so long since Jesus was Lord of their worship that he ceased to become Lord of their hearts in so many ways. And the point is, externals alone won't bring new life. Taking Jesus out of the middle is not going to help you. Two quick things about this passage. First, in context, this is actually not talking about every single believer in Jesus. Paul is clearly talking about recognized church leaders and teachers. Second, Paul is not talking about salvation. He's talking about these leaders' work being judged. In fact, he emphatically says, you know, uh, their work will be burned up, but they will, you know, they will survive. Um, so it's not, about, it's not about salvation. So far, Paul has been trying to act as a mirror to the Corinthians. They're claiming to be spiritual people, but Paul is saying, you're acting like worldly people. Worse yet, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're acting like people who don't have the Holy Spirit. You not only have a warped view of what following Jesus is about, but you're so focused on that warped view that you're missing the bigger picture. And we need to be careful of the same thing all the time. The question is now, this is all going somewhere, we're, we're looking at what this meant to the Corinthians. Now comes the, the crux here. What is the cure to this myopia? In a way, Paul presents a solution very similar to those of you who have nearsighted corrected. Right? He gives them a new set of lenses, a new way of seeing themselves and the world. What Paul is about to do is blow their minds. He's about to show the Corinthians that the Jesus they're so ashamed of, at least his, the death part of him and the resurrected body part of him, has made them more special than they can possibly imagine. And to do so, he uses the image of the temple. Now, this is absolutely brilliant because people in the ancient Near East loved venerated holy spaces. To them, um, we live in a, uh, even, you know, even this, we call this a sanctuary, but we've become accustomed to knowing that, you know, Christ is everywhere, God is everywhere, God is in our hearts, this kind of thing. So we, we treat this a little more special, but we, we're more, I don't know, casual about this space. In, in the ancient Near East, and in many places still today, a holy temple or a holy place, I mean, this, we're talking shoes off, kneeling, ritual, you better come in with a sacrifice, this kind of thing. Because for the, uh, the pagan, the, the Corinthian church is made up of ex-pagans and ex-Jews who became Christians together. So for the ex-pagans, they're used to um, uh, over a thousand shrines in Corinth during the early 50s AD when this was written, and many, many larger temples than that. And when they would go into one of these temples, it was serious business. In fact, desecrating one of those temples, treating it with a cavalier attitude, um, letting your kids run in it, you know, that kind of thing, would be, 
could have caused the death penalty. Same thing is true with the Jewish temple. The Jews believed that the place you're most likely to meet, the very presence of the living God, was in the Holy of Holies in that temple. It, you, you came in ready to worship. There are all kinds of differentiations as far as who could get close to that Holy of Holies place. Ritual washing. Um, and you start to weed through people. Oh, Gentiles can only go this far, and women can only go this far, and, and, and men can only go this far, and then Jewish men could get in farther. And finally, the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. I mean, all of these boundaries and barriers. And the point being that both of these groups of people, the ex-pagans and the ex-Jews who were Christians in Corinth, understood that a holy temple was a very, very special place that needed to be venerated. Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, quick Greek grammar lesson in the Greek text. The you is in plural. Okay? I don't know what you've been taught about this passage before, but this is not saying that you, Joe Ackerson, are the temple of God and that the Spirit dwells in you. That's, the Spirit does dwell in you, but it's not saying that you, Marcus, are the temple of God and that the Spirit... It's saying y'all, church, we, the church, as the gathered community, are the temple of God and the Spirit of the living God dwells in us. Not just Leonard Streets, the church around the world, the gathered community of believers in Jesus. Have you ever entered a holy place or a place that you found was holy? I, maybe you don't have those experiences. I don't know, some of you are probably more so. I'm kind of an aesthetic person. That's my, one of my avenues to worship. So, and I'm a history buff. So when I travel, especially in Europe and things like that, and I go into you know, the Sistine Chapel, or even uh, well, Corey and I were on this tiny little island, Iona, and uh, it, there was a, um, uh, an ossuary where supposedly the bones of St. Columba was there, and uh, there's a story where Viking marauders had come to steal. They would often do this to monasteries. They'd come steal all the wealth, and they got close to this shrine where St. Columba was buried, and the presence of the Lord was so great that these uh, marauders ran off the island. So this is, who knows if that happened or not, but there's a sense to some of these places that have deep, significant meaning. Um, you know, even St. Peter's, where the, the big red marble circle is, where Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, just, I don't know, I t I, just touching it, I just, you know, I just felt like I should be quiet. I should not talk right now. Uh, there's, there's a certain places, and maybe you've had those experiences. Maybe there's holy places in your life. You know, holy simply means set apart for something special. For some of you, your holy place is your car. You wash that baby. The, you know, no eating or drinking in the car. It's always nice and pristine. That's you know, a special place. Some of you, it's a certain room or rooms in your house, you know, where no roughhousing in this room or this room is set apart for X, Y, and Z or things should be in place. Uh, for others of you, it might be a certain spot in your yard, okay? Uh, and for some of you, it's your body, like... You know, me, I, I like to feed my body healthily. Um, well, at least I eat a lot. So, you know, so, but whatever it is in your life, we have these certain holy places. And the point is that you don't desecrate those holy places. Whether it's that special room and a special spot in the yard or your car or your body, we're used to this kind of thing. And 
we don't desecrate those spaces. Paul is saying, you, Church of Corinth, are the temple of the living God. Woe to the one who destroys this temple through petty jealousy and strife and division. But his message isn't just one of woe. It's good news that gets to the heart of who we are. And here's what I mean. Paul knew that the Corinthians, just like you and I, were struggling with believing fully the power of the good news. Really grasping that God could love us so much that he would put on flesh and die in shame and rise. The Corinthians were still full of self-loathing and shame. And when you feel ashamed, you start looking for ways to deal with it. Some of us get arrogant. We push others away. We start to believe the press about ourselves so that we feel good and successful. Some circle the wagons and form little groups of like-minded people. We're right and they're wrong. We start to demonize those who think differently or look differently or act differently. You form ways of making yourself feel special, even if it costs other people their dignity. And when you think you have to fight to earn everything in life, you begin to live in fear. Fear of losing the things that you've earned. uh, Fear of never having enough. Fear that if we don't look out for ourselves, then we won't succeed. Fear that if we don't adopt the wisdom of the world, which is survival of the fittest, we're going to be left in the dust. And Paul says two things quite bluntly. First, if you think that the world's ways uh, are wisdom and that service and obedience to God and death to self and the way of the cross are foolishness, if you think that, then you need to become foolish. But the second thing is when you do, when you loosen your grip on the relentless rat race of surviving on your own strength, then you come to find that you gained more than you can possibly imagine. Paul says, let no one boast in mere people, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul, meaning if you want to glob onto the things that Paul has done to his success, you don't need to form a clique about it. It belongs to you because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Or if you want to champion Apollos, you don't need to claim him to exclude everybody else. His teaching, his wisdom, it's all of ours because we're together in Christ. Or Cephas and his leadership and his legacy... You don't need to just have your click that highlights Cephas. It, it's all together. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And it reminds me of another teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed, blessed are the humble, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So counterintuitive. So countercultural. Blessed are those who trust that they're loved so much by God and that He has come to, to make His home in their community. Blessed are we when we accept that our brothers and sisters, our church, is the temple of the living God. How would that free us from these fears that we live with? How would it open us to be encouragers, not complainers? To serve rather than to calculate, hey, when was the last time I got served? 
How would it free us to challenge each other when we get off track? You know, a lot of times we don't admonish one another like the scriptures tell us to. We see a brother or sister starting to walk away from Christ and we don't say anything because we're so afraid that they're going to get mad at us. But what if we really believe that we were the temple of the living God and that everything is ours in Christ anyway and that love is not even a thing up for debate. We already know it's true. Then how does that free us to actually have these conversations? No fear of offending one another, but knowing that every admonishment comes in love. See, the good news is that you are a stone in the temple of God. And, and what that means is that, if I, Nancy, you read from First Kings before, there is so much talk in Exodus and Kings about the building of the tabernacle and the temple. These stones were not even allowed to be cut with instruments on the job site. They had to be quarried, hand-picked, so when, you know, don't think, oh great, Chris is calling us a rock, what a great metaphor. Uh, no, you are a, that means you are chosen by God to be part of his temple. It means there's something unique about you that Christ died for, that he wants as part of his church. And that means that the church needs you. Like, not, well, I do, but it's not about what we need to get things done. Like, that's not what I'm saying. The church needs your expression, your gifts, your perspective. How, and I'm asking myself this question to you, how have you lived myopically, so focused on your own situation that you feel lost in the scheme of the big picture? I want you to hear this good news. Lift up your eyes. See that you are a vital part of God's presence in creation. We are his temple, the place his glory dwells in all of creation. Your part, your life, your toiling, your suffering, and your joy, it all matters in Christ and because of Christ. That is good news. Father, thank you so much for sending yourself, your son, however we want to parse that, you gave of yourself, your preciousness, died for us, and rose to give us new life. Bless you, Lord, that our life is not just frivolous, like just trying to survive for what? Lord, you've called us into your church. You've given us life for a reason. You've given us purpose. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are so overwhelmed maybe right now with what's in front of our faces that we've forgotten that we're part of something much more glorious than ourselves. Help those of us who are suffering to see that our suffering is not in vain, the Lord, that you will make all things new, that you'll somehow redeem and use these, uh, these barren times. And Lord, for those who are filled with joy, Help us to see that our joy is more than just for personal pleasure. Our joy brings you joy. Our, our joy is a witness to your work in us and around the world. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us believe this good news. Help it to soak into our bones, into our way of thinking, into our way of feeling. Make us new.